This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And we welcome you back for a, a deep and startling segment, I think, of, of Dollars and Change. Uh, we're going to be speaking to Swap Naredi, an expert uh, really on the disparities of maternal health, um, to sort of put it, put it generally. And I'll start our segment with um, this sort of unbelievably tragic, hard to believe, you know, fact that America ranks the worst out of all developed nations on maternal mortality, which is the rate of women who who die during childbirth or within a year after. So for all we have accomplished as a country, for all the wealth, for all the technology, that's where we stand. Don't have a baby. It's where we stand. And it's, you know, it's an issue that quite literally affects Every person, I guarantee you, you all came from a, a, a woman, um, and so you know this is this is powerful stuff. So, Wapna, thanks for being with us to discuss it. Thank you so much for having me. So, why don't you start by giving us, um, I guess, just like a one minute overview on your background and how you became an expert and um, such a passionate, um, you know, active member of uh, you know this this issue area. Sure. So thank you. So I'm a clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University at the College of Health Solutions. Um, And really my background and focus is in how policy and legislation can be tools to improve population health, especially those for the underserved, and and really with a special focus in women and children. And, And I'll tell you, when you focus on women and children, to your point, I mean, this is one of the most important issues and one of the most tragic issues impacting women's health. Because as you mentioned, uh, regardless of all of the advances that we have in medicine and in health in the United States, I mean, I would argue that we have some of the best, if not the best, health science in the world. Uh, we have this gross disparity as it relates to maternal mortality, and it affects everybody because, you know, we're all, in fact, born. Um, and not only does it affect uh, women as a whole in the United States, but we know that certain women, um, specifically African-American women, are disproportionately impacted. And I have a specific interest in, in minority health and health disparities that, that impact minority populations. Yep. Well. And let, let me let me pause there, because when you say disparity, you know, I want mm-hmm. to highlight for our listeners exactly what, what that means. So black women um, in the U.S. are three to four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy-related causes nationwide. In New York, it is a multiplier of 12, 12 times more likely in New York City. Which is just hard to believe. Which is unbelievable. And and, and an additional compelling data point is that the problem is not limited to class. There's not an association with socioeconomic status. Having a higher income and more education offers no statistical protection. So you're, you're, you know, in comparing individuals with the same, you know, income, education level, you know, a, a black woman is still many times more likely, depending on where you are geographically, three, four, 12 times more likely to die during childbirth. That is a significant, I mean, a significant disparity. And Swapna in, you know, this is in the zeitgeist right now, you know, women's issues broadly, you know, uh, Serena Williams, I think in particular, put a little bit of a spotlight on um, the the race disparity of maternal health but I've never, I haven't seen any, any, any explanation for it. What, you know, what do you think is driving this? Right. So this is what's really tough about this topic because 
Um, there's not a single cause, and we can't just put our finger on it. And I think that that's what's really tough here is because you're right. If we Even if we adjust for socioeconomic status, even if we adjust for education, kind of some of our common factors that we can usually explain disparities with, we still see this tremendous, we still see this tremendous disparity and we still see that African-American women are experiencing this differently. So there's something about the African-American experience and especially the African-American female experience in the United States that makes this more likely. And so when we try to think about what that is, um, we have to look at sort of a complex web of upstream factors. So while we know that African-American women are, you know, disproportionately more likely to live in poverty, to have unsafe housing, to have less access to to regular and preventative health care, including prenatal care, there's also this piece about bias and kind of what bias in our everyday life does, and then especially bias in the healthcare system does, uh, to our health. Because what's happening is this kind of persistent and lifelong experience with racism, perceived racism, um, and especially the unconscious bias and implicit bias that we are hearing so much about these days. It's certainly not new, but we're, we're kind of opening our eyes way more to it. We know that Starbucks just had, you know, national training right. on unconscious bias, right? Um, what that, how that actually impacts women at a skin deep level, but also what it does in the healthcare system, right? Um, because we know that through biases, a lot of times we get, uh, physicians and other healthcare providers, healthcare systems that aren't listening to some women as much as they're listening to others because there's biases about their ability to understand it, their ability to be compliant, um, if they actually, if they're over overemphasizing things like pain. And, and those little sort of biases that might already exist when you're in a trauma situation, when you're in an emergency situation, when symptoms aren't necessarily so obvious, actually can lead to really dangerous health outcomes. And in the case of these African-American women, um, all too often death. And so when you, I've heard this about sort of like leadership characteristics and other things that, you know, there's a sort of it, you have a resting state, and then when you're in a state of trauma or a heightened state, they sort of show up in a more extreme way. Are you saying that bias does as well? Well, yeah. So we know that about bias, right? And that's what's really tough about the unconscious bias is that it's something that exists. Um, it's something that exists in all of us. We all have biases, and so usually when you're in a trauma state when you're in a state that you're not necessarily prepared or um, expecting to have, those biases pop up. And so that's why it becomes so insidious. And uh, it's really this um, when these emergencies happen. And that's kind of what's happening. It's happening post-birth. Got it. So you're saying this, let me, let me play this back and check for understanding. So what you're saying is, you know, maybe if you're in a composed, thoughtful state, you're able to be uh, more balanced, more aware of biases, you know, to, who's the you, uh, you, a physician, let's you say. A physician. Okay. and um, able to, you know, sort of treat people more consistently, et cetera. If you're in a heightened or sort of a state of trauma, or there's a particular instance that's um, requiring, you know, immediate intervention, you're not being as thoughtful. And so bias shows up because you're on more autopilot. 
Is that what you're yeah, saying? I def- yes, and there's definitely evidence to, to support that as well. Huh, huh. Um, I think what's a little more uh, bothersome here is that absolutely this all becomes heightened in trauma and emergency situations. But as we know from other instances in our society, I mean, not all instances of bias and the effects of bias are in trauma and emergency situations. And that exists in the healthcare system as well, right? Because mm-hmm. healthcare providers are not, are not so different than you and I, where they come to a situation with whatever biases and preconceived notions that they have. And so even in the non-trauma, non-emergency situations, these biases are popping up in a way that's pretty insidious and really hurts things also like uh, women's trust, and especially African-American women's trust in the healthcare system. Yeah. And you, I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine the implications across a lifetime if you do not trust a healthcare system and are not trusted by a healthcare system. So you focus in a bit of your work on healthcare system design. I was just going to go there. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, these are, these are human issues that you're talking about, right? It's bias, it's individuals. How does that fold into the, the design of healthcare and, and what are some innovations or, um, you know, proposed innovations that are helping to to minimize these biases or control for these biases? Right. So I think a big piece of bias is really first acknowledging that bias exists, Mm -hmm. right? That especially Mm -hmm. unconscious bias exists Mm -hmm. and that it has a role and an impact. So that's kind of step one. And I think, you know, we're not really at a place where we we have a, a quick answer on how to overcome these biases. So from a healthcare delivery, healthcare systems perspective, the best approach is really standardizing processes, right? So that's what the evidence kind of tells us. That's what the research says is when we have standardized processes in healthcare, by the way, we do better kind of across the board in all outcomes, um, but especially in kind of checking and overcoming our biases, right? So um, things like standardized processes that deal with hemorrhaging, standardized processes that deal with blood loss. So you're not really waiting to, uh, to uh, utilizing checklists. You're not really waiting so much to depend on that communication between the provider and the patient. And although that's incredibly important, if there's a standardized process, we're less likely to fall to kind of the human pitfalls that can occur in those situations. Right. You're less likely to miss something or assume, make, you know, make false assumptions that could be relevant yeah. and important. Right. You referenced a yeah. couple of things such as some, you know, how much someone's talking about the pain right. versus how informed they are to advocate for saying they feel different in that, in that moment. But if it's, if it's a part of a checklist and you got to go through all 10 steps, you go through all 10 steps with every patient. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've, um, our, our friend Atulka Wande uh, is a big promoter of, of the checklist yes. in, in healthcare, right? And so we know that that helps outcomes as a whole. This is another example of that. And, you know, I'll tell you that among, you mentioned earlier that among developed nations, the United States has the worst outcomes as it relates to maternal mortality. Um, but we have great swings even within the United States. So, Texas, which is my home state, has the highest rate of maternal mortality uh, in the developed world, actually. But, you know, California has one of the lowest rates of maternal mortality in the United States, and it's actually very similar to Canada. And a lot of that can be attributed, not, of course, everywhere in the state, but certain major healthcare systems, Kaiser is one of them, um, UCLA is another, are really focusing and depending on these uh, checklists and these standardized systems. So, um, And the other... Uh, so just to confirm and drive that point home, so you're saying that in in California and then also Canada, they are they are using these checklists, and whether it's 
correlation or causal, but they also have very low mortality rates. Yeah, so, much, so certainly higher than it should be, of course, right? Mm-hmm. But certainly a lot lower than many other states in the United States, including Texas, which which has the worst rate. And I'm I'm not insinuating that you know there's not checklists and processes in 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 Texas, but uh, what I'm saying is I think when you have standardized processes and you recognize that it's important to overcome the existing bias in a way that does not lend itself and open itself up to human error, mm-hmm. um, we just see better outcomes. And this is just a great example example of that as well. And are these checklists usually done on a hospital by hospital basis or is it is it something a state implements or does the AMA implement it? How how do these checklists get developed and then implemented? Well, there's certainly organizational recommendations, mm-hmm. um, but huge I mean and professional recommendations, but I think part of the inconsistency here from a systems delivery perspective is that this is organization by organization, gotcha. right? So I think it's incredibly important for the profession itself, um, for healthcare itself, to kind of take a deeper look as to what are the causes here and does bias exist? And and by the way, I'd like to say, you know, when we think about bias and acknowledging bias, there's not really a great kind of perfect marker for, for measuring if we're biased or not. Sure. But the implicit association test is, is, a, is a good and important tool oh, um, yes. in terms of just creating a conversation. That's what I think about it. It's really great for sort of thinking about your own biases and creating a conversation. Yeah, about. and let's let's pause to plug those. So these are, I think they're out of Harvard. Um, you can Google yes. the IAT tests. That's the implicit association tests. They're free. Yes. Uh, or at least many of them are free, and you can take them on race, age, disability, gender. Um, what else am I missing? Weight. Um, so these are, te- take them in the privacy of your own home. They're humbling, I think, to sort of take, um, to your point, swap. And they help, you know, if the first step is sort of admitting you have bias, it's a really thoughtful way to begin, you know, begin your, your own sort of self-discovery around where where you might have bias and why. Um, and to begin the conversation, if only with yourself, then hopefully with others. Um, so I'm curious about the trends. Has this is this getting worse? Is this getting better? Sort of maternal mortality broadly, and then specifically this the disparities. I, I, I'd like to think disparities are shrinking, but what's happening? Yeah. So I think you know, look, if we think about it in the history of humanity, or even the last hundred years. Um, we're doing better than we used to because, you know, childbirth, as we all know, used to be a pretty dangerous, um, dangerous event that happened in women's lives. Um, If we compare it to where we are in other areas of medicine, especially in women's health, uh, I I, I think this is really disappointing where we are. And I think the United States can do a whole lot better. And I think why it's so disappointing is because we seem to be really resistant in looking at these upstream factors, right? And things that are really tough, like the unconscious bias, like the kind of relationship with being female and being African-American, that kind of intersectionality between race and gender and socioeconomic status um, and all these other social determinants that we know are so important. That stuff is really to take a look at. Um, I will say also when we talk about trends, though, I think what's important is not only in this standardization of systems, but also in what are we doing from an education perspective. Um, I teach at the undergraduate level and the graduate level at ASU, and, and, you know, we have specific courses on health disparities. I think it's incredibly important to educate and train the healthcare providers of the future 
uh, in thinking about these issues and understanding these issues so that it's not something that they have to think about for the first time and name for the first time, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Right, into as a practice. professional, right. Yeah. So is right. the, is the really thought that a part of what they are, does a class on health disparity, and this is truthfully the first time I've heard about it, Great. so I don't know if this is, you know, really innovative at ASU or I just have not gone to medical school, but, you know, what what are the aims of the class? Is it to help people, you know, understand startling statistics like this race maternal mortality one so that they're aware and try to manage or correct for it in practice? You know, what are what are the big goals of a student leaving this classroom? Yeah, so for, for students that are leaving this classroom, what I personally want them to understand is, look, this is an evidence-based uh, science. This is evidence-based study. So there's evidence to show that these disparities exist, okay? But the question is why. And when we think about why, it's really important to not hang our hat on these old hooks, which are things like genetics, which are really kind of, first of all, in tend to be incredibly sort of racist and biased uh, answers for a lot of things because it kind of assumes that while, you know, certain races and ethnicities certainly do have predispositions for, for particular diseases, it makes this assumption that there's really nothing we can do for these groups of people, right? And mm. and I think that that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really old way of looking at things. And as we're moving more towards really looking at social determinants of health, and that's important for students to understand social determinants of health, upstream factors, things in their everyday life, things in, pa- in, in p- patients, families, children's everyday lives that extend way beyond the clinic walls that really impact health and health outcomes. That's the goal of the class, for them to understand that these disparities mm. exist and a lot of these disparities are caused by these upstream factors. And I'll just add that it's incredibly important to f- create that foundation at the undergraduate level, um, but I also uh, help teach and, and help, help develop this at Mayo Medical School in Arizona and, and at Rochester as well. So I think teaching it at the medical school level and the efforts that they've done at the Mayo Clinic in general has been really extraordinary in this in this space is just acknowledging that implicit bias and then starting to teach students that this is part of medicine and, and it's not sort of this extra thing that you mm-hmm. learn, but it's part of what it it is means to become a high quality responsive leader in healthcare. Yeah, I just want to remind our listeners that this fascinating conversation is happening on Dollars and Change on Business Radio Series XM One Eleven. Uh, we are speaking to Swap Naredi, clinical associate, assistant professor at Arizona State University. Um, we are talking about um, sort of maternal mortality and healthcare, you know, disparity in the healthcare system. Um, you know, Swap. I think a lot of listeners can't believe what they're hearing. <laughs> um, and this is, this is, you know, very startling. Um, I have two questions for you. One, you know, what should medical professionals do who are listening and are, are practicing? Um, let me start with that one. So my sister's a physician assistant. She's out there. She, I do not believe she took your class because she did not go to ASU. Maybe she had a similar class. But, you know, what's the advice for how practitioners can in the absence of a checklist, in the yeah, in the absence of a checklist, or or even in the presence of a checklist, like what should they be doing to increase their awareness, education? You know, what what's best in class look like for their behavior right now? Yeah, so I think you know, look, the, the study of health disparity and health equity, which is really thinking about it, you know, from a justice perspective. Um, I I think we're very fortunate uh, that that this is something that is gaining a lot more traction in, in educational institutions all across the United States. 
not just at the undergraduate level, but in medical school as well, which I think is incredibly important and other healthcare professional uh, training programs. Um, I think that number one, um, it's incredibly important and it's vital to acknowledge that this is an issue and to acknowledge that disparities are exist and that as a country and as a, as a healthcare system, we think that they deserve some attention and we need to do better, right? We can't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, um, that's how it goes. That's too bad. Sometimes you're going to get good outcomes. Sometimes you're going to get bad outcomes. I mean, we have to hold this concept of disparities to the same standards that we hold so many other standards in healthcare in the United States. And that's why we're so good, by the way, is because we don't just kind of go with the status quo on so many diseases. So we can't do it here as well. Um, so first, I think it's important for medicine uh, as a whole, and that doesn't just mean physicians, but healthcare as a whole to acknowledge the problem. Um, I think it's incredibly important at First of all, at an education level, to infuse this in education, uh, starting an undergraduate and moving all the way to- forward. And, and by the way, also not just in medical school, not just, you know, in nursing school, PA school, but also in, in professional education. Um, so this can't just be something that you learned about once or twice, but really that this is part of what you're thinking about um, because people are experiencing this, right, throughout your, your professional career. Uh, and I think it's really important for organizations to acknowledge this. And so you're right, not everybody has these standardized systems and not everybody has these checklists, but that doesn't mean that that can't become more regular also. I mean, we've seen this in healthcare and medicine historically as once healthcare as a profession and as a system starts understanding the value of things, organizations kind of follow suit. And so I think it really begins with that acknowledgement and then there's a real value in education, whether it's foundational education or sort of continuing professional education in the area. Got it. And my, my second question is in, in sort of the same framework of what can one do for individuals who are listening, whose partner or wife is having a child for women listening who are having children. These are really startling, startling things to think about. Um, whether you're white, whether you're black, you know, whomever you are, how, what are some things you can do, you know, read, advocate for, you know, um, it's, it's a sort of a bummer to put the burden on the patient in a way, but um, what do we know about what individuals can do to sort of um, go address or pro- manage this? Kind yeah, of yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, this issue, like most health issues. Um, At an individual level, I think the best thing that anybody can arm themselves with is just education and and health education, right? So trying to be the best advocate that you can for yourself. I mean, that's kind of across the board and certainly here. It's a little tough, though, because you can't just tell everybody to go educate themselves to be a strong advocate, right? Um, I think it's important to kind of learn about the issue um, and have strong uh, relationships and open communication with healthcare providers during those kind of prenatal months, I think are incredibly important if that's an opportunity. I think also having loved ones there to advocate on your behalf is incredibly important. I mean, I've had two kids and I don't know that, you know, in the process of of, give, of giving birth, I was the best advocate for myself <laughs> at that moment. You were focused um, elsewhere. Yeah, you had, you know, kind of other things going on <laughs> at that moment. So I think having loved ones and whoever that is to also mm-hmm. be there to advocate on your behalf is incredibly important. But having those kind of relationships um, with providers 
on the front end is really important and doing some research if it's possible. And we have to also understand that it's not always possible, right, um, to, to, to find maybe institutions that have standardized these processes and that do take kind of, that have taken sort of a leadership role on this issue is, is incredibly important. And I would also say, you know, um, kind of holistically and, and sort of big picture is advocate for those um, and support those that kind of get these larger issues, not just in healthcare, but in society, because healthcare is really just a mirror and a reflection on what's happening in society. It doesn't occur in its own silo, right? So if we're not really getting unconscious bias in the United States, we're not going to get it in, the, in, in, in healthcare. So it's important, I think, that leadership at many levels uh, gets it and, 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 and normalizes it in our culture. So I have a question then about um, the trends. So Sandy listed the statistics, which are pretty terrible, three to, you know, African-American women, three to four times more likely to die, 12 times mm-hmm. in New York. What's the historical trend? Is it fairly steady? Is it getting a little better? Is it getting worse? Do we have Do you have any sense of that? In the racial disparity? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, African-American women, especially from the racial disparities perspective, um, have always had worse uh, maternal mortality outcomes than uh, than their Caucasian counterparts in the United States. Um, and I don't think that that's particularly surprising considering the history of the United States sure. and, the, and the history um, specifically of African-American women in the United States. Um, so what's kind of happened, though, in historically in the U.S., um, as we mentioned, you know, childbirth has, has always been sort of a precarious situation and a somewhat dangerous kind of uh, experience. But we've, we've made great strides in making it a lot less dangerous across the board. Now, do we have a, a ways to go? Absolutely. And do we certainly have a ways to go compared to, to other developed nations, you know, 100%. But what's bothersome here in the trajectory piece is while women as a whole in the United States are experiencing, you know, still better outcomes in the maternal mortality piece, the African-American women experience has not caught up. And so that's where this sort of huge divide is, and it's, that's, I think, where it's really important for us to take a, a, a deeper dive. I mean, overall, historically, yes, it's better, um, but we're certainly not catching up to, and we're not anywhere near other developed nations because they've made much stronger strides in this area. Amazing. So we're, we're closing the gap slower um, than, yeah. than others. Yeah, and, that's, and, and, and in some ways, by not closing it, quickly enough, our gap in many ways is actually just getting worse and worse for those that are experiencing it, right? Because they're so left behind from the advances that are happening for other people in our society and definitely, you know, in the developed world. Yeah. So up against these great challenges, we talked a little bit about, you know, what medical professionals can do and how they might be able to think how um, patients can advocate for themselves educate themselves and have have loved ones near to to be you know additional advocates what else needs to be done is there policy work research you know what are the other um, areas that you think really need to be tackled to see major progress here yeah so you know with my kind of nerdy academic hat we love those i would say yes yes i would say that um absolutely more research needs to be done right and that research needs to focus on that okay but what is what else is happening here? And if we say there's something specific about this experience, well, what is what is that specific thing? Um, or and, and and what are those specific things? How can we kind of narrow that down so we have so we build a stronger sort of evidence base in that perspective? Um, I think though, 
in academia, the problem is uh, we we create the research, which is really great and really important, and we show it to other people in our sphere. Yes. Yep. <laughs> other and, people who uh, will read a 45-page report. Yes. Yes, yes. We mostly, you know, uh, high-five each other about how smart we are and um, and what a brilliant breakthrough that is. But it's not reaching the public, for mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not reaching this really important stakeholder, which is uh, which is kind of the policymaker elected official space, right? Mm-hmm. So our academic research journals are, you know, are not necessarily top of their list in, in what they're looking to to create um, evidence to create policy. And that's not necessarily because all elected officials don't care, but it's not necessarily usually easily and readily um, understandable or available to them. So I think taking that research and translating it to policy is so key. Um, and whether or not it's that policy at the local level, state level, federal level, but also to our earlier point about you know standardized systems, at the organizational level as well. Um, I think we're, we, we run this really weird silo system where we learn things in academia, but we're not actually taking them and, and translating them into practice for the benefit of the people that, that you know we're doing it for. And I think we can get a lot better with that. And I think in terms of, of creating really strong relationships with elected officials, um, serving as a source of, you know, unbiased, evidence-based research. Um, we're certainly working really hard to do that uh, at, at ASU with our with our local um, state and federal officials in, in terms of creating this evidence-based information to help influence policy and really with the agenda of just improving population health. I think that's a great first step. I mean, it's a big, it's a, you know, it's a giant step, but in terms of prioritizing that step, I think that's really key. And why why the uh, the governmental and le- legislation rather than like the uh, AMA the American Medical Association why not why not have them be the first point of uh, pressure on these kinds of issues? Sure. Well, I I think you know, and and when I said organizational, I I I mean certainly including professional organizations mm-hmm. as well. I don't. Where, what I think is, I don't think that the, it, anything needs to be kind of first. I think it needs. We need to try to do okay. sort of this um, uh, multifaceted approach where we really need to focus on all of the primary stakeholders here, right? Mm-hmm. So that is elected officials, that is healthcare systems, that is health education, and that is these kind of professional organizations that really set the standards and the norm and the culture as well. Um, I think, and I think that historically we think we can't do all everything at once. But I don't necessarily think that that's correct. I think if we acknowledge all of these stakeholders have an important and key role at the table, um, we can absolutely create information. We can actually engage people in ways that that is palatable and understandable for them um, in order for them to go and, and create this change as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for, for us, this is... Um, music to our ears around that research translation piece, because that's, you know, that's a big part of our responsibility um, is that whether it's impact investing data or, um, you know, and the, re- the, the hours of the sport and social impact. Yes, sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, yes, ours yeah. at WSI or, um, you know, academic research on bias, you know, and how to combat bias. If these are 60 page academic reports behind a university paywall, we can't expect people to take action on them. And so, you know, it's a it's a huge responsibility and opportunity and gift 
for us to be able to take that and turn it into something usable, whether it's by legislators or by practitioners, medical or otherwise. Um, and I and I think it's an exciting time too. you know, there's been a lot of conversation around Starbucks uh, bias mm-hmm. training that took place. I think it was two days ago. And obviously being here in Philadelphia, that's a topic of conversation because we are home to said Starbucks. Um, but <laughs> thinking about what what we're going to see emerge and evolve around the sophistication and sort of implementation of bias training, because it is a really, it's a really tricky issue. Um, And so I'm curious to see, you know, what the response is to the Starbucks training, if it has an impact. And we're going to have to camp out in a Starbucks store and just watch what goes on. Yeah, well, I think we're going to, I think this is the beginning of a, a new era of sort of sensitivity training as it was known in the nineties and now, you know, sort of unconscious bias training. So I'm excited to see what happens there. Um, we are coming towards the end of our segment, which is, you know, sad because this is a you know fascinating conversation and uh, one that really has an impact on on all of our listeners. Um, Swapna, before we we wrap up, any you know final thoughts, advice, um, action items for our listeners? Yeah, I think that um, I agree. I think that the the implicit bias and unconscious bias piece and conversation that the Starbucks incident has has created and the training. You know, I think starting the conversation is probably one of the most important things we can do nationally. Um, I think that's how we make all kind of large changes uh, from a policy perspective, from a cultural perspective, from a social perspective in the United States. If we have to start thinking about it, talking about it, you know, we do get out in the U.S. We don't really necessarily get there quickly or easily, but we, we get there. And um, I truly believe that that we're on the precipice. Of, 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 of figuring these things out and getting better, um, but understanding how complex these issues are and that, that we need to do better and we need to be better, I think is the first step. And having conversations like this is incredibly important and shining a spotlight on is incredibly important. So I thank you for, um, for taking the time uh, from your program to, to do so. I think, I think that's one of the most important steps that we can take. Excellent. Delighted to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Swapna, thanks for being with us. Um, to our listeners, of course, we will continue to tweet out our guests and things like this. So you can follow at Wharton Social if there's more you want to learn and follow along with. Um, you are listening to Dollars and Change here on Business Radio Series XM 111. We'll be back to talk about the conversations we had with all of today's guests to take your calls and questions and to talk a little bit about what's going on at Wharton Social Impact. Thanks for being with us. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.